All right, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much for just letting us gather today and that uh, we get to come and study your word. Uh, Just give us wisdom and insight as always as we go over these topics, Lord, and just learn how to preach your gospel. Um, Give us those opportunities also. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, does everyone remember what uh, this week's topic is? Super fun. The problem of evil. So what do I mean by the problem of evil? Well, how can you believe in God when there's so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world? Has anyone ever thought about that? What, that? what that ends up looking like, right? So we live in a world where there's suffering. We live in a world where there's pain. We live in a world where, quote, bad things happen to good people. Well, why is that? Why is that even an issue? Why do we even have this issue? Why is the existence of evil and suffering and a cost to either the existence to God or to his character? Well, as usual, I'm going to quote some C.S. Lewis. Um, And this is in his book, The Problem of Pain. Anyone ever read that one? Mary has, Bonnie has, okay. So C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, quote, all argument and justification of suffering provokes bitter resentment against the author. The author meaning the perceived cause of the pain, not the author of the book, right? So, not to get too personal, and if you guys don't want to raise hands, that's fine, but how many times, or if you have ever um, been experiencing just a deep despair or something um, horrible or tragic has happened in your life, and then you became angry with God? I know I have, absolutely. I think we all have as, as Christians. And we're going to delve into this a little bit more, even um, with C.S. Lewis. He has. So, as far as the problem of evil, there's huge skepticism as how we as Christians are able to explain it away effectively. And that was the attitude of C.S. Lewis for quite a while during the period when he was an atheist, and he wouldn't even really listen uh, to Christian responses. Yes, you guys heard me correctly. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, a very strong one in fact, until he realized the great problem that he had as an atheist. He just believed that we live in a world of pain where there is pain. That's it. The world's just an awful place, and then that's the end of it. There's no objective good or objective evil. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Do you guys know what I mean when I say objective good or objective evil? Getting a little little mixed. Okay, so... Subjective means it's something that I believe in and it only applies to me. Objective means whether I believe in it or not, it exists outside of my belief. Does that make sense? So we can say that certain acts, whether or not I believe that they are evil, are always evil. Murder, okay? Murder is one. Every tribe, every tongue, every culture in the world objectively believes murder is always an evil or a wrong act, okay? So, in order for his argument as an atheist, C.S. Lewis, to have any strong sense, he had to maintain that there really was evil in the world. And that was inconsistent with an all-powerful, all-good God, and the problem, as he realized, was that his idea of evil was just his own personal preference. And he starts to wrestle with this early on. His own personal taste, as it were. It was the way he felt about things, not necessarily that the way things were with regard to his whole atheist perspective. So this became a very logical problem for him. If you guys have any read C.S. Lewis, like Mere Christianity or any of his books, you know he's an extremely logical thinker. He began to realize that if there was indeed evil in the world, then there had to be some objective good by which it's the standard to measure that evil, which is not very far away from the idea of God. And this is what's starting to lead Lewis down that path. So in many ways, he argued himself into the existence of God merely from the reality of evil. And this brings us to our first point. Every worldview has a problem of evil, all of them. doesn't matter if it's New Age or Buddhism or Hinduism. Every single worldview has a problem of evil. Of course, we'll be dealing with ours, the Christian worldview, and the problem of evil. But it's interesting to note that other worldviews have an even greater problem of evil than we do. 
What do I mean by that? In atheism, there's no objective basis for evil at all. It's merely one's preference that you don't rape and eat his young children. That's just a preference. That's not an objective evil. You see the problem yet with that? Now, I understand from this very horrific example that I think it's obvious that it is a great problem, especially the atheistic worldview. I think deep down, whether we want to admit it or not, we can recognize something like that is always evil. Something that horrific isn't just a matter of personal preference. Please, everyone agree with that one. Okay, good. So an another author by the name of G.K. Chesterton once said, quote, we've given up the idea of original sin when that's the only doctrine of Christianity that can be empirically proven. How many of you have raised young children? Uh huh. Pretty much from birth, you'll notice selfishness from your kids. You'll notice rebellion from your kids, and they haven't been taught anything. It just happens. How is that? You just have to open up your eyes, and you can look at the world. We've seen many people come to Christ from that basis that there really is evil. C.S. Lewis is one of them included. So we also see this in Eastern mysticism, New Age, neo-paganism. They reject that there is objective evil or good. Again, by objective, I mean something that exists outside of somebody. It's true regardless if someone believes it. I mean, you can believe 2 plus 2 equals 20, but that doesn't change the fact that 2 plus 2 actually equals 4, right? Not surprising since in these philosophies, you have the idea that, quote, all is one. Anyone ever hear this one yet? Okay. Or rather, that there's no distinction in this world. So there's no distinction between my wife and I, there's no distinction between me and this table, between true and false, between good and evil. Anyone seen the craziness of this yet? However, if there is a difference between good and evil per se, and that worldview has no basis to explain it, then that becomes a problem. So let me uh, kind of unpack this a bit. So if you come to realize in your particular worldview that something happens to be true, and it's an objective truth. It's true whether or not you choose to believe in it or not, but you realize that it is actually true. But in your worldview, you don't have to explain that that thing is or even why it's true. Do you see how this is gonna kind of send you in a tailspin, right? It, it just maddeningly, and it, and it um, kind of implodes on itself. It's just self-deconstructing. So if there is evil in the world, well, that's a huge problem for the atheist, Hindu, Buddhist, neo-pagan, whoever because there's no way in their worldview to explain objective evil. And if there's no objective evil, then Christianity and Judaism and Islam are all false. So we have this dichotomy here between the two, right? So us, the Jews and the Muslims, say that there is objective evil. Pretty much everyone else says there isn't objective evil. And they are mutually contradictory ideas of evil between our two worldviews. So, I want to bring up this other point. So the, we are all right, we're all climbing up the same mountain to get to the same level of truth, just different perspectives. Does that work? No. One of us is wrong. You can't have this, this mutual exclusivity between the two worldviews that everyone is right and it doesn't matter and you can't offend anybody. Someone isn't right. It's just the nature of logic. It's just the way that it works. We quite literally cancel each other out on this issue of objective evil. So atheists have said, at the heart of Christianity, we Christians have a huge contradiction. That you can't have an all-good, all-powerful God and have evil in the world. Or, that's the deductive argument, and then the inductive argument is, or that the amount of evil you have in the world was inconsistent with an all-powerful or all-good God. Also, there's an emotional problem of evil, which says even if you have the intellectual framework by which you can explain the existence of evil or the place of evil in the world, you still have to deal with the emotional struggles that come when you actually encounter it. And that's our biggest problem, right? When we actually encounter evil. We can have the, or the intellectual ideas of how God is sovereign. We can have the intellectual ideas of, we know that all things work together for the purposes of God's glory. 
However, it's the emotional effect. When that evil actually comes to us, how do we deal with that? So the deductive argument of evil against Christianity proposed by the atheist, it goes like this. This is the formal sense. God is all-powerful. He would be able to eradicate evil. God is all-good. He would want to eradicate evil. Evil is not eradicated. Therefore, there is no God. Now, in that argument, there's a couple tenets of Orthodox Christianity, which are certainly true. It's taught by scriptures, and it's been held by church orthodoxy since the book of Acts. God is all-powerful. Yep, absolutely. God is all-good. Yep, evil exists. Those three tenets of that argument are absolutely true, okay? And those are called the theistic tenets of faith, if you guys want to use fancy words. So is there a contradiction in any of those propositions? Well, let's define the terms again. Where would there be an explicit contradiction between any of these ideas? Now, if you said God is all-powerful and he turns out not to actually be all-powerful, then that's going to be a contradiction. If you say that God is all-good, and yet he isn't all good, that also would be a contradiction. If you were to say that evil exists and evil doesn't actually exist, that would be a contradiction. These would be what's called explicit contradictions, where you can actually see that they cancel each other out, that it doesn't quite fit, right? However, there is no explicit contradiction on the surface of any of these ideas. God being all-powerful, God being all-good, and evil existing in the world. So the atheist in this argument attempts to supply a missing premise in which he hopes to show that there is a a contradiction in these theistic ideas. J.L. Mackey, an atheistic philosopher, he said this, and he's trying to insert the missing premise, and that's how they prove that, quote, God doesn't exist. He says, quote, God is opposed to evil in such a way that a being who is holy, W-H-O, not H-O-L-Y, a being that is wholly good, eliminates evil as far as he can, and that there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do, then we have a contradiction. Okay, well, there's a couple problems in the way in which he sets out this missing premise. The first one is that there are no limits of what an omnipotent being can do. Okay, (laughs) follow me closely on this one. There are limits to what an omnipotent being can do. Can you guys name a few? Who was doing the rock argument? Go ahead. Can't make a rock that he can't live. Okay, why is that a limit? Do you know? Because it's something he can't do. Right, it's totally illogical, right? There, there are those illogical arguments where you know God can't do things like square a circle. Then it would be a square, not a circle, right? Uh, you, you get the idea. He can't make a rock so big that he can't pick up. Um, Right. And the funny thing is, side note, if you guys want to have fun, uh, type into Google, can Jesus, and then the next thing comes up, microwave a burrito so hot he can't eat it. So that's, that's another one of those really weird things. So he can't do the impossible or the immoral. God cannot die. Well, and stay dead. We'll leave that one for later. He cannot lie. He can't do such illogical, contradictory things, such as building a rock so big he can't move it. So the main problem with this missing premise is, though, is that God, being holy, good, W-H-O, eliminates evil as far as he can. Now let's deal with that one, that as far as he can portion of it. It's, it's too ambiguous, right? What if eliminating all evil led to either greater evils or the loss of all goods. Does that make sense? I mean, I I know we're kind of, but I'll flesh it out later, but I'll say it again. What if eliminating all evil either led to the loss of all good or even furtherance of even more and different types of evils? And let me kind of flesh this out. Take a look at uh, Alvin Plantiga's book. If you guys want a good, just, you know, dive deep kind of deal on this. 
He says, quote, in this book, it's, it's called God, Freedom, and Evil, where he demonstrates that there is actually no inconsistency in the theistic set. And the theistic set is God's all-powerful, God's all-good, and evil exists. And how does he do it? He says, quote, An all-good, all-powerful God created the world. God creates a world where evil is permitted and has a good reason for doing so. Therefore, the world contains evil. So it's that second premise that's interesting in Plantinga's book. God creates a world where evil is permitted and has a good reason for doing so. Now let me backtrack here so you guys can be clear what I'm not saying. God creates a world where evil is permitted. I did not say God creates evil. Does that make sense to make that differentiation between the two? And again, we'll flesh that out even further. And here's why that premise is very interesting. If this premise is merely logical possible, then there is never a contradiction in the theistic set of ideas. So there's no logical impossibility or apparent contradiction in that has a good reason for doing so. That's why God created a world with the possibility of evil, and he has a good reason for doing so. Is that idea logically possible? Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, it's so logically possible, uh, Mackie, on his pretty much much later in life, after wrestling with this statement from Alvin Plantiga, kind of recounted his original position. He's like, well, there is no logical problem with the theistic tenets. I just don't believe them. But there's not a logical problem with them. So, if there's no logical impossibility or apparent contradiction in that God has a good reason for doing so and creating a world with the possibility of evil, you have to just ask one question then. Anyone guess what it is? Why? Why? Yep. That's the $64,000 question. Why? Why would God even create a world with the possibility for evil to exist? What are the reasons for doing so? Funny thing, uh, Plantiga cautions in his book that it might be unwise, which we are about to do, to unpack the reasons why God would allow evil. We could be totally off in our reasons or justification of why God permitted evil, and God would look down and say, no, that will not do. You've totally missed it but we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> so this really could be overcome by adding a word, just one word in the argument. God is all-powerful. He could eliminate evil. God is all-good. He would eliminate evil. Evil is not yet eliminated. Two words, sorry. God will eliminate evil. Not God does not exist. It's just a timing issue. Does that make sense? Got you with me? Hey, it's not where I thought you would go. <laughs> okay. So in Christianity, we have this idea that everything created is good, right? What did God say at the end of creation right before he rested? He said all was very good, actually. So that, then, what is evil? And it comes back to defining our terms. What is evil? Is it subjective? Is it something that I prefer you not do? Or is it objective, that it's always evil? Well, Augustine uh, defined it as a privation or a perversion of the good. Evil is a parasite upon the good. You, now listen to me on this one. My wife and I were <laughs> talking about this on the way home last night. You can have good without evil. How is that possible? What's that? Design. Like right. If you design anything, right, you create the possibility for design, like there being a problem if it doesn't function in the way you created it, right? Exactly. Like creating something good, you yep. actually created Something good, yep. <clears throat> so you can have good without evil because it operates on a positive. It stands alone by itself. Standing alone by itself is good. If we were to define evil as a privation of good or a parasite upon the good, that means you can't have evil without good. But you can have good without evil. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Because evil requires good to even exist, because, but you have nothing else to judge it to. It's a negative. Yeah, does, does this, okay, okay. If, if you guys are like, stop, 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 too much philosophy. Yeah, Mary. I'm, I'm glad you say that, because that's one of the things that drives me nuts the most, is people say, well, we couldn't have good if there wasn't evil. And I nope, it's the other way around. Every day that I have a good day, it was good. Right. And I didn't need anything bad to happen to have a good day. Correct. Like, and it could keep going that way. It, it, yep. It would be functional, therefore it would be right. good. Right. A moral person can do a good deed outside of Christ. Correct. You know? It, yeah. it doesn't take... Uh, yeah, we went around it. It was good. It was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, would you, would you agree, though, that while, while it could be a, a, a good day, if we're using this analogy... Uh, you might, if you didn't, if you hadn't had a bad day, you might not recognize how good of a day it is. So you don't, you might not understand the contrast. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't if be your good. Heart's... Correct. Right. Okay. Well, right. We, yeah, you wouldn't have to call it anything. You wouldn't have right. to Right. You wouldn't have to. But if you had a bad day, how would you know you what a bad day is? Yeah, you experience it. Right. You can only judge evil with good. Does that make sense? And this becomes a very serious problem in the atheistic mindset. It was a huge problem for C.S. Lewis, and it was a huge problem for me when I was an atheist as well. To have this all of a sudden, oh no, okay, there's more than just my preferences out there of wrong stuff. There's actual evil. Well, that's an issue. Oh no, this evil exists. How can I call it evil unless I'm measuring it by an absolute standard that's better than it outside of me, outside of my preferences? Because... You guys have heard me quote this before, and C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity, literally, so forgive me. He says, to hell with your feelings, right? Who cares about your feelings at this point? It's an actual objective evil. So, like I said, evil exists as a parasite or a distortion, misuse of that which is good. Everything that is created is good, but evil misuses or distorts that which is good. God created the capacity for people to choose evil. Again, hear me very clearly. I'm not saying that God created evil within people. He created the capacity for people to choose evil. And I'll give an example. Yet that itself is not evil. Capacity does not equate evil. Here's a perfect example. Okay, Calvary Chapel, Centralia. How many people in this building right now do you think are armed? Quite a bit of them, okay? The amount of guns that are in this building right now, the amount of ammunition that's in this building right now, we have the capacity to kill every church member in this building right now. We don't have membership. We don't have membership. We don't have membership. But my point is, we have the capacity to kill every person in this building right now. Does that capacity, meaning we have the ability to do it, is that capacity in itself evil? No. Only if it was acted upon, then it becomes evil. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So, you're assuming it's either good or evil, and there's no neutral. Yes. Why? Well, because... <laughs> so, for those listening at home, Colin asked... I'm assuming there's either good or evil and no neutral. Why? Why isn't there a neutral? Because the neutral, as I experienced as an atheist, and so did Lewis, the neutral leads to a self-perception or just a completely subjective idea of what is evil and what I don't prefer, and it changes. It, it's, it's a moving target, and it, it never stands still, and it's just, it it's can't. It's just a preference? It's just a preference, and, and it's completely illogical because... Well, I like to follow the rules of logic, and, and when you have this thing just constantly moving and changing with everyone's ideas, I mean, holy cow, look at today. We have, right. you know, gender fluidity. What is that? I, I mean, you know, I mean, there's so many weird things that don't even follow any laws of logic. And it's just, in me, in my mind, it's just insanity. Does that make sense, Colin? Well, yeah, I mean... It... My, my question, I, I guess the, the question is, is, is you're saying something either has to be good or evil, it cannot be neutral. No. A thing? A thing or an act. Let's go back to our, <laughs> let's go back to our example of a, of a, of a day. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So you're going to, you either say it's a good day or a bad day, well, what if it's a neutral day? 
What if what if there was not anything that was good about it, but there was not anything that was well, bad? Well, the absence of evil is good. Right. Yeah. So it was technically a good day. So that's my point, is that you're just saying the absence of evil is good. Mm-hmm. But, but good has its fruit of it, though. Right. right? So if, if God made the world good and it has a design, a good day creates certain things. Like if you have a good marriage, you have certain feelings, certain responses, certain things that happen. Same if you treat your children well, there's certain fruits of that. Right. A neutral day would probably be a bad day, if there's such a thing as a neutral day, because you wouldn't actually be performing the things inside of it. Well, if you had a neutral day, if you want to completely unpack that, well, it's a day that pretty much doesn't exist because what happened in it? Yeah. You know, I mean, because every action is going to have, here we are in Newtonian physics, right? Every action is going to have an equal and opposite reaction, right? So if you have a day that's completely neutral, that means nothing happened in it. How is that possible? So, so, but if you subjectively feel ambivalent about everything that happened to that day, then you could say that you feel neutral about that day. However, uh, you're alive, and so the, uh, the like alternative to that is not being alive. So you could say that if you weren't alive, then you wouldn't have the opportunity to have a good day or a bad day. So the fact that you're alive, you can take as a good thing. I mean, because I think Correct. you would prefer that. Yes. So that could be considered a good thing, right? Yeah. You have the capacity to have a good or a bad day. Yep. Logically. Yep. Am I missing something? Nope. Nope. And I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so. So, yet why did God create people with a possibility to do evil, and knowing that they would choose evil? Well, maybe there are lesser evils or greater goods created by allowing evil to be present. What are some of these greater goods or lesser evils? Well, here I am doing the, the very thing that Plantica advised me not to do. So there's a couple, three different arguments on this, the, the um, greater goods or lesser evils. So it's free will, natural law, and uh, soul making. So let's take a look at free will a bit. It's much better that there is freedom of the will than not. So this is held both on whatever camp you're at in theology, either Arminian or Reformed. Both of them hold to this view that uh, it is better to have free will than not. On the Reformed side, when you guys are thinking, oh, they're all just determinists, you know, everyone was chosen. No, 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 hold on. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it states this. Why is there evil in the world? Man, by the freedom of his will, sinned. Westminster Confession, right, states that. And then there's natural law. Couldn't God constantly intervene every time that there is a potential for evil in people's lives? This would create some problems. If, there, if that was to happen, there would not be a consistency in the moral order if God were to constantly intervene. There'd be no responsibility. So no accumulation of ordered experiences and no possibility of character or culture. Again, Lewis, is. I mean, it was a theme here. I really like Lewis. Um, he responded to this. He said, quote, God could constantly intervene so that a wooden beam became soft as grass when used as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it that which carries lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions would be impossible. So there would be no consequences for the choices that we make. And would that be a better world? I'm not going to answer that question. I'll leave you guys to ponder that one. If you guys are going to go out to lunch, that'll be a fun conversation. <laughs> right? Is that a better world? If there's no consequences to our actions. So, the soul-making part. C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, he said this. Quote, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains as his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. It shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. You guys have probably heard this before. It's quite a famous Lewis quote. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. So these are some of the reasons people have answered with the reason why God has permitted evil in this world free will, natural law, or soul-making. Also, 
that there is the glory of God at stake somehow. We haven't talked about that one yet. Like in Colossians 1, quote, the whole world was created in, through, by, and for Christ. So you see something of the glory of Christ revealed from this whole process of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation, right? Or in Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This whole idea of foreknowledge and predestination is that Christ might be seen as the originator and that's entirely his glory. Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay. We, however, still have the emotional response of the problem of evil. We haven't dealt with that one yet. So Lewis, in his intro to the problem of pain, acknowledged that although he was giving intellectual responses to the problem of evil, he wondered if he would have the emotional fortitude to face it once it came. Let me give you a timeline of, of events here. When he did encounter later in his life the death of his wife, Joy, he was thrown into a real tailspin. So, so Lewis wrote the problem of pain pretty early on in his uh, Christian life. Now, he didn't meet or marry his wife, Joy, until he was in his late 60s, so much, much later in life. And they actually got married in the front of the church, pretty much on her deathbed in the hospital. The priest that was there put his hands on Joy and prayed for her and anointed her with oil that she was expected to last only about a few weeks of life. And she had what some could say a miraculous recovery, or at least for a period, a remission of her cancer. And a couple weeks after that, uh, rather than dying, she was able to get out of the hospital and get up to almost normal walking with a cane. During those three years before she died, they had the joys later in life that many of us have experienced in our 20s. But then the cancer came back, and it came back with a vengeance. And after all the joy he had in those three years, he lost Joy, his wife, and that sent C.S. Lewis into a tailspin, and he had great grief of what he had lost. And he decided to keep his thoughts in a journal, being who he was. He wanted to just work through it in his own way, just for himself. Now, mind you, these were not intended to be published, ever. It was just his own thoughts in his journal. He had a friend come by to visit him. Roger Green was his name, the friend's friend, or name, sorry. Green asked Lewis if he could read that journal someday. Well, and he took the journal, he read it, and he said he thought this would be very valuable for other people to read. So Lewis decided to submit it to a publisher anonymously, under a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk. So the book, quote, A Grief Observed, was published first under N.W. Clerk, the pseudonym. Here's a funny thing. Lewis actually received gifted copies of that book that friends gave him knowing what he was going through to help him through his grief. Wow. Before they knew it was Lewis that had written it. So in the beginning, okay, let me pause here. Has anyone ever read A Grief Observed? Mary, you have? Didn't they do a movie? There's two movies. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it, Margaret. So the Hollywood one um, on Lewis's grief of losing his wife, Joy, uh, is called Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins. It's, it's good in the portrayal. It's not good in the conclusion because it, it doesn't quite finish to where Lewis had come through his grief and his faith was even stronger than, uh, than before, okay? Um, you, you see in Shadowlands the Hollywood version of he just starts to doubt uh, the existence of God, which actually isn't true if you read uh, Grief Observed. The BBC one, if you can find it, is actually better because it, it shows where Lewis finally ended up in that, the, the progress. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember it. Devin's Googling it. <laughs> so, um, Mary, so you've read A Grief Observed. How long has it been? It's been a long time. It's been like 10 years. Okay. So I won't pick on you too much. But if you guys have a chance to read it, do. It's a pretty quick read. It's like 90 pages or so. It's not very long. Because remember, it was just Lewis's journal um, of him working through the grief of him losing his wife. But 
don't stop reading it because of what you start reading. The first 10 to 20 pages are pretty bad, okay? Because you're gonna read this and you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, how can a believer be thinking or saying these things? This is horrible. Unless you're me and then you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, Lewis was so, um, a grief observed. So, so Lewis. Oh, really? Hmm. So, so Lewis was, it might be, but there's two versions of it. Um, so Lewis was so stricken from his grief, and you can understand, I mean, this was the absolute love of his life, and they had in three years what most of us have had, you know, for uh, a lifetime in our marriages, the love and everything that they shared. So about the first 10 or 20 pages, it's, it's hard to, to read someone like Lewis saying these things about God. Um, he equates God to basically like a cosmic sadist, you know, someone that just enjoys inflicting pain and suffering and just wants to see destruction. He's so angry and so hurt. But you can see the progression in it if you, if you keep with it, right? There's some awful thoughts in there. Um, but this type of book, you just, you can't stop reading it because you'll be left there and that's not the conclusion I want you to have. So there's a gradual lifting of this cloud uh, that Lewis has and a resolution at the end. During a dark time in the book, Lewis said this, quote, but go to him, this is how he felt with what was happening, and this is how I'm sure a lot of us have also felt with what's happening when there's extreme grief in our life. But go to him, meaning God, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting. See, that wasn't a doubt that God existed, but that was a doubt that God was good. And that is what Lewis was wrestling with, the character, not the existence of God. And the real danger, he said, was coming to believe such dreadful things about him. Quote, the conclusion I dread is not that there is no God after all, but that this is what God is really like, and you can deceive yourself no longer. He is going through a really, really tough time. Lewis finally came to the lifting of the cloud in that same thing in our grief. We are like that drowning man that you're trying to save that cannot be helped because he clutches or grabs it. And Lewis realized this. We don't see the purpose for these things happen, and sometimes we can't know We can't possibly perceive the purpose of these sufferings, yet we can put our trust in the God who knows why. We may not know why, as Job never did know why. Do you realize that? We do, as the readers of Job in the beginning of the book, we know the why. Job himself never knew the why. He knew what was restored to him, but he never knew the why. That was never revealed to him. Isn't that something? But we do. There are times and where we may not know the why, but we do need to trust in the God who does know the why. So I know this is a difficult, difficult, difficult subject, especially when you're trying to have this conversation with an unbeliever, because what does it boil down to? What gives us our hope in this problem of evil? Our hope in this problem of evil is that it's only evil in our perspective, right? Our hope is that there's a, perhaps a greater good or a lesser evil. Joseph, for example. Our hope is that it's beyond our understanding. The atheist's hope is that this is all that there is. But that therein lies the huge, huge problem with the atheist. And I hope if you have those hurting people that you can have their conversation with them. And the conversation is, how can you call what happened to you evil? You can just say you don't prefer it, you don't like what happened to you, but you cannot call it evil, right? And I've jokingly taught my kids this for years when they've asked about the problem of evil. What if somebody says that there's no evil in the world? Well, you just punch them in the face and walk away. (laughs) Wait, what? What do you mean? Well, what's, what's the first thing if someone comes to you and says, there's no evil in the world, poof, punch them in the face. What are they going to say to you? You can't do that. Right. <laughs> that was mean. Why? To quote Lewis again, to hell with your feelings. Why can't I do that? Do you see the point in this? 
okay. Um, anyone lost so far? I know this, these are, especially in the philosophy stuff, it gets, it gets a little overwhelming. Yeah, Mary. The pain brings us to a point where, you know, we like to think when we're, when we're feeling okay, we're not actually in just internally dealing with grief and pain. Yeah. We like to solve all the world's problems. Right. But really, when you end up in the pain yourself, you realize none of the solving of the world's problems are going to make a lick of difference no. to whether you matter or not, or anything happening in those moments when you're alone mean anything to anything, right? Like that becomes right. between you and, like, it, it just wipes all that away. It becomes you and God. Or you and, or purpose, maybe just pointlessness, right? It's terror, right? Yeah. But the the atheists, right, they they keep trying to, I think, keep themselves wrapped up in the solving Selves. of mankind problems. Mm -hmm. But the problem of pain will still, right? Like the yep. pain screaming really is such a gift because for the Christian it does just... It's hard still for us, but it breaks us down to our hope being planted in Christ and in His promises. So we just we believe in this goodness beyond where we're just at in the present moment, right. believing that the will cross the Jordan, right? But but for the the atheists, when they're caught in that, like it's just terror. I'm guessing, like, right? There's, but it's a chance. It's a chance for them to realize. All the trying to escape and philosophize and right. everything. In the end, we're all we're, we're all exiting. Yep. <laughs> most likely, a, in some kind of painful death. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what most of us have to for. And I think the crux of this, right? So we're talking about how to share the gospel with people who have these objections. Yeah. Right. We have to bypass their emotion. Yeah. And to argue with emotion doesn't work. You might as well be arguing with a brick wall. Yeah. However, apologetics is to share the reason for the hope that's within us. Yeah. And we have a hopeless world that is hungry for any tangible thing to give them hope. Yeah. And I think, I, I think just the reason why God allows us to go through awful things is so that his glory may be shown yeah. Yeah. and to provide hope for other people going through similar things did you guys ever think of, i don't know if i've talked about that but that verse that my wife is quoting be ready and willing always to give a defense to everyone that asks of you the reason of the hope that is inside you they're not asking for why you believe they're asking for the hope so what does that mean that means you have to be going through something nasty there's something bad you're going through and they're noticing your response and they're asking, why aren't you losing it? That's what they're asking. Does that make sense? Right? Talk to Charlotte Thompson right now. Right. I mean, that woman, she's I like, know. oh, he went first. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and did Charlotte really say that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's... And the world can look at her. She just lost the love of her life of how many years, Margaret? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I, she told me. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and she's with a smile on her face at the memorial, and it spoke volumes to anybody that saw her. I know. Absolutely. So how do we have this? And again, um, I like my wife. She, she always... Yeah, I love you. <laughs> she, always, she always brings it around to where the application, that's the whole point why we study this stuff. How do we apply what we've learned to actually those everyday conversations? And what does that look like in sharing the gospel? Well, it, it comes in if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and that's their objection. How many times have you guys had that conversation and that's their objection? There's too much bad stuff in the world for your God to exist. Or there's too much evil. If that, there is a God. Right, why would there be so much evil in the world? And that's where we end up using this to get them to realize that you can't call something evil without an objective good to measure it by. And you're just being subjective, and I don't care about your feelings at this point. That's not a good way to argue. No, <laughs> that is not a good way to argue. Because the whole. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Gentleness and respect, right? No, but. If you can get people to realize 
just the, the logic of where their worldview leads to. Follow the path. Follow the path, right. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of any of this. When you have those conversations, if you can just get them to realize, okay, you say evil exists in the world, yet you don't believe in absolute good. How are you believing in evil? How do you believe what happens to you is evil rather than your own personal preference? How do you believe what you, anything that happens to you is, uh, only matters to anything apart than just you? I wish we could have filmed in juvie when we're preaching because this is played out almost every time we preach at juvie. Yeah. And, and to have them unwind it, ask them the question, okay, so what's the logical end of this? Let's follow this further. Let's follow this further. It's so well played out in juvie mm -hmm. because the kids, not only do, do they have underdeveloped minds, right. but they, a lot of them have never heard these things of God. You know, and they ask, well, you know, if... Because I'm gay, do I go to hell? You know, and we're like, oh, certainly not. Certainly not. Not because you're gay, it's because you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. Who deserves, or who needs a savior. What, what do we need to be saved from? I mean, and have them talk it out. It's just, it's this, follow the logical path. Even in a teenager, <laughs> it can be followed. Right. And have you guys ever had that one too when you're talking about, well, perhaps God created us with the possibility of evil. And they're like, well, then God created evil. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, that's not what we said. Right? Or the capacity, rather. And, and then it boils down to, anyone read Norman Geisler? So, okay. Yep. So John knows where I'm getting at this. So, so Geisler, if you want to um, delve even further on that side of it, Geisler argues, well, maybe this isn't the best possible world with the best possible outcomes, right? And he kind of fleshes that side out, like, you know, possible worlds. We won't do that here. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that for you guys if, if you guys want to um, end up looking at that as far as the possibility of evil. But, uh, are we running out of time? We are. Any questions or other comments? I know this is a very difficult subject that we only get an hour for. Yes. I think as believers, we need to convince ourselves that the, the Bible is true and that God is good. Yes. And no matter what happens to us, we have to be so focused on the realization that our God is good that our first response isn't why? But, but God, I know you're good. So there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a lesson. Mm -hmm. Because you're good. And because we respond that way, the world looks at you and, and says, explain Right. One of the best quotes and one of the saddest quotes I've ever heard was, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Those who go out their door, acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips, and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Harsh, right? That's what prevented me also, personally, was those people claiming to be Christians. And like the comment that we just had, Absolutely, and it's how we handle that grief. I mean, do we have the ability to just trust God at his word that God is good, or are we like Job, right? Where Job starts to question and he starts to ask the why. Then what happens, for those of you that have read the book of Job? It's like 38 chapters. God starts, starts asking him some very difficult questions. And then what's Job's response at the end of it? It's like a beyond, I'm sorry, you know, woe is me, for I'm a man undone of unclean lips. You know, I, I'm sorry, I have no idea. Um, I think it was an old song when I, by New Song when I was a kid, but there's a line in a song that says, when you don't understand, when you can't see his plan, when you, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Hmm. And if you can live that out, you're like, dude, I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't, but I trust the God that created me. And he has a plan for all this. That's where faith comes into play, and that's what the world is noticing. Yeah. He has a plan for it, but we don't always get to know. Right. Like, we don't, he doesn't take us to no. the side and say, 
here's right. why I'm doing this. Right. Just so you know, because like you know, I've gone through some stuff and I'm like, I never did get to know why. Right. You have to experience that. The majority that of the thing. time, you won't. Uh -uh. But it's but it's learning to trust God regardless of yeah. what's happening in your life, regardless of the pain that you that is inflicted on your physical body or your emotional life. It doesn't matter. It's still learning how to trust God that He's bigger and He's and He does have a plan. We just don't always get to be privy to it. It might be something way down the road. Correct. And we might get to find out, but we might not. And we just still trusting yeah. yep. Him that He's got He's bigger and He understands and He knows. And we're a part of the plan, but we don't. We don't get to. Well, <laughs> yeah, John. I think for for me, I when I remember that, um, what is suffering without purpose? Suffering without purpose is dreadful, right. mm -hmm. and we can become that person, you know, in our in our life, and we see it in the world that they're suffering without purpose. But the word is full of encouragement for suffering for a purpose. Right. James one two three. I have a lot of James one two three. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, David said in Psalm one nineteen seventy one, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Mm -hmm. There's a purpose in it. First Peter four. You know, and so if we if we dwell on those truths before you know before the trouble comes because he's yeah. John sixteen thirty three promises trouble that we can make, if we have a purpose in it, it may take us a while like it took C S Lewis right but if we can hold on to the truth of the word that there is purpose in the suffering then we can endure with joy yep I think that's where we have to put that guard on like the full armor of God right? oh gosh yes man it feels like all the condemnation at least for me everything uh -huh. I've done wrong. I don't know, it's like like blaming myself is like number one temptation, right? And it feels like your prayers are just, you know, raining right back on you, yeah. just hitting the ceiling, yeah. yeah. And I also have a brother or sister. Gosh, yeah, you, right? Right. Well, I think one thing we can count on no matter what we go through is we're going to run across somebody else going through something similar that we could encourage after we go through it if we keep our hearts right. Yep. It's never just for us. Right. No. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. That is a very good point. Mary. I was just going to say, have you listened to Jordan Peterson much talking about how he yeah. lives, lives yeah. as if God exists, or he tries to live as if God exists and explains why he does that, because he doesn't claim Christianity. Uh, but he says it's because in his experience, you know, people say they believe in God, but he doesn't see that they believe in God, like that it actually, right? because he feels like the weight, if you did believe in God, the, the weight you would carry, if you believed, especially like in Christianity, and, in a, and, and it was real to you, that would, that would yeah. change you, and so he yes. tries to live as if God exists, actually trying to, I guess, live that change, but in some ways, you know, not really clinging to a Savior, and it's too bad, like, I'm not trying to condemn other like, mm -hmm. Christians in that. I'm just saying it, it, it's made me think about, like, I don't know that Christians, we can solve that problem because we're human and we're sinners. And uh, our light is, yeah, we have problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. All right, guys. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, okay? Father, again, we thank you so much for the truth of your word, God. And we just ask that you would just give us wisdom and grace as we deal with these conversations with folks um, and give us courage as we go about to be able to share your gospel because, God, your word tells us it is the power of salvation. Not in us, Lord, but always in you and in your will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.